0: Family Office Connections, I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today our program focuses on the art, wine and spirits, and collectible spaces and how family offices are looking at these industries. I'm joined by three accomplished professionals who have specialized in this world from a variety of angles will provide their unique perspectives of working with and for family offices in the art, wine, and collectible arenas. Today we'll discuss several areas including the effect of uh, COVID-19 on the individual markets in this space, lessons learned from previous downturns, how to start a collection, how family offices can support collections and potential pitfalls that they should be considering, uh, risk management around collections, valuation, and then NextGen in terms of using collections uh, as a way to uh, engage there. So let's get started and with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Ron Varney, founder and principal of Ron, Ronald Varney Fine Art Advisors. Ron, give us a quick snapshot of your background.
1: Thank you. Um, actually, I started in the art market back in 1989 at Sotheby's and I worked in the Trust and Estates Department for a number of years And then eventually, I started my own firm in 2012, uh, headquartered in New York, essentially representing family offices, private clients throughout the United States, and in Europe on a host of art-related issues. A lot of these have to do with buying and selling art, uh, valuing art, authenticating art, and so forth.
0: Thanks, Ron. Uh, My next guest is Jamie Ritchie, worldwide head of Sotheby's Wine. Uh, Jamie, give us a quick overview of your experience. I joined
2: Sotheby's in 1990, 30 years ago, having just celebrated that uh, my 30th anniversary on uh, Friday. Uh, I'm English-based, born, but I've lived in New York for the last 25 years. I run our global wine and spirits business, uh, which uh, involves auctions in London, New York, and Hong Kong. We have a retail business in New York and Hong Kong as well, Uh, and they're expanding into storage. Um, and I oversee the, uh, the retail and the auction storage business, the entire wine operations.
0: Thanks, Jamie. And our third panelist today is Mary Klein, an advisor on art for family offices and, and COO of a global law firm. Uh, Mary, give us a, uh, some insight into your professional background.
3: Yep. Um, thanks, Ed. I currently serve, as you mentioned, as chief operations financial officer for a multi stakeholder global law firm. I held senior partnership leadership roles in transactions and governance at Ernst & Young and realigned the operations for a multi-billion dollar single family office. I represent Carnegie Hall as an advisory director and have been doing that for over nine years and I serve as a member of the investment advisory committee for the Art Student League of New York. Thanks, Mary.
0: All right, let's get underway with our questions. Ron, um, you know, given that a lot of museums, auctions, and festivals have been canceled or moved to some sort of a, a virtual setting uh, because of our response to this pandemic, how have you seen this affect the art and collectible space?
1: Well, I think it's certainly shaken confidence in a lot of people. Um, you know, with the entire art market basically paused for the past uh, three-plus months, it's uh, created a lot of doubt about uh, how to sell things how to get things valued Uh, just the practical issues of let's say managing a collection uh, all of those have been called into question so i think people have had to rethink uh, how they approach the art market with museums closed the auction houses slowly coming back to life and the art fair is all but canceled so i think that uh, we're kind of reinventing the art market as we used to know it we're in a phase now where i think that Everything is being looked at with a fresh eye, and increasingly, we'll probably get into this as we go along, but I think technology will play a huge role in how this market is redefined. And Jamie can probably talk a little bit about recent sales at Sotheby's uh, that have been virtual with uh, people bidding from sale rooms all over the world. This is kind of the new way in which uh, the art market is going to go forward. But I think technology is going to play a huge role in this sort of reinvention of the art market.
0: Thanks, Ron. Well, Jamie, in that vein, uh, how has the wine and spirit market fared uh, during the pandemic?
2: So we've been through a a massive digital transformation. Uh, We had, uh, we were fortunate enough in each of our locations to have wine and spirits in our warehouses that we'd already inspected and were processing for live auctions. Uh, when uh, the stay at home orders came, we obviously uh, knew that we weren 't going to be able to convene live auctions in any um, in any with any speed, so we converted a number of those auctions to online only auctions uh, and we sold Probably about eight million dollars worth of property uh pretty rapidly in four or five different sales in different locations uh so i mean we were planning we did actually recently launched a new auction um platform online auction platform we we're planning to sort of convert over to that over a period of a couple of years mm-hmm. and it's, essentially we did a two-year conversion in two months so very very fast um yeah we had multiple challenges but um but, but very successful outcomes our market has remained, you know, very, um, very strong, very consistent. We didn't adjust any of our auction estimates before any of our sales, um, and. Uh we have uh, set multiple records uh, in the spirits business for the most expensive Japanese whiskey, the most expensive cognac, the most expensive Delmore. Uh, we've set our records in the wine auction business in terms of uh, at the top end, you know, the most expensive infusers, which are six-liter bottles of Romani Conti. And so our market has been very, very consistent. We just concluded a $23 million series of sales in Hong Kong, which is our third highest series ever. Uh, And so we've been conducting these auctions either online only. We have done some studio auctions, which is where we have uh, an auctioneer performing live in our building, but we don't have any clients attending. So they're taking telephone bids and online bids and, and using the absentee bids. And we actually have one of those coming up this Wednesday. Uh, and we in Hong Kong, we did revert to live auctions uh, about two weeks ago, and we held a series of live auctions. So we're doing the three. I absolutely agree with Ron that technology uh, and the transformation is here. Uh, we, we won't be going back to printed catalogs for the vast majority of our sales. Uh, I think that the technology will play the biggest role in terms of, of the wine and the spirits business and how transactions are done Are uh, going forward.
0: Jamie, and follow up on that. How popular were you know uh, before the pandemic were online auctions in your space?
2: So we, it was a, it was a transition which we we're all sort of slowly going through and navigating. And uh, and obviously you need a, a solid platform to be able to do that. And you want all the you know, enough of the tools and the bells and whistles. So we didn't have all the tools and bells and whistles to do it, but but obviously I had no choice but to move forward. So um, yeah, we we were on a much slower uh, progression. We've now got in the pipeline a, a number of of, uh, mm-hmm. of new um, yeah, updates to our to our technology coming very very fast to to continually improve it. So yeah, I, I think we weren't um, yeah, we weren't we weren't fully embracing it beforehand and going on a slower trajectory, and now it's full speed ahead.
0: Thanks. Ron, uh, this is certainly not the uh, uh, first uh, sort of soft times we've seen in these these various different markets. Are there things that you can talk to us about, some lessons that learned that you've learned, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, periods after the financial collapse in 2008 or in the 90s? Mm. Any, anything that that's a, a good lesson learned that we can maybe consider going forward past
1: 2020? Well, it is. It's interesting if you look back to Black Friday, Black Monday of 1987. Uh, that economic upheaval uh, really didn't last that long. Uh, the crisis of 2000, 2000, 2008, 2009 was passed pretty quickly, and before you knew it, there were new records being established in the sale rooms. Dealers were opening new galleries, and uh, new many players were being attracted to the uh, art fairs and to the art market in general. So in the past, the economic upheavals have pretty much paused the market, kind of paralyzed people for a short period of time, but things have always bounced back almost exactly the way they were before. Um, This is very different though, because I think we have uh, every institution of the art market has been completely shut down and is being reinvented now. So um, it's, it's a very different, in a highly unusual and kind of scary environment. Uh, I think the auction houses have been really good in kind of leading the way with holding sales and getting some activity. People see, need to see momentum. Uh, I would say the one thing we've, uh, we've learned over the years is this, that the value of art does not rise and fall with the stock market. You know, values are affected by matters of taste and demand really not by by Wall Street. So um, I think it's a cliche, but I think art will hold its value. It's just that the mechanism for dealing with art in the market is going to change. And I think a lot of people are going to have to get used to this new reality. And Jamie mentioned, for example, the online catalogs. I I would say that before COVID-19, the auction houses were kind of gently trying to coax people to consign property for online sales as though it was a lesser mode of selling. And in fact, there were a lot of things that were in the lower kind of value that kind of shoved into online sales. Now, that is gonna be the new reality. They're gonna get rid of catalogs, I think, and we're gonna see more and more marketing promotion through digital platforms and online sales. And I think uh, just the recent examples have shown they can be done very successfully.
0: Thanks, Ron. Uh, Jamie, are there there wine and spirits considerations for previous downturns or, or is this something very different?
2: well, so, so uh, unlike what what Ron was saying for the wine and spirits, our, our market does generally track
0: the the
2: stock market, We tend to be a leading indicator, the first thing it gets switched off, and the uh, the first thing it gets switched back on again. so you know from from to the the crisis in two thousand and eight when that when that actually happened, I was in uh, in Hong Kong setting up our Hong Kong sales, and you know the prices went down by about forty percent in wine, and we were just very, very fortunate. That the, uh, the Asian bars, particularly the mainland Chinese, came into the market from, from you know, April 2009, and really brought our market back much much faster than than, than any mm. of the other markets. So we we do track the um the the stock market to an extent. Um, I think that that you know with this you know with this we actually we skipped over that downturn. So we did not have any adjustment to our pricing at all, and we still have a strong market today. I think yeah, the, the question is, 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 what's going to happen going forward? You know, we're still selling a lot of wine, but we're not doing the same volumes that we would do normally. And so yeah, with the lower volumes, the prices are certainly holding up. Um, and you know, when we did our $23 million series of sales recently, yeah, that was the first major, major test of the, of the wine market, and obviously it held up very, very strongly. So we're very, we're very actually optimistic about, about the future and, and having a pretty strong and stable market going forward.
0: Thanks. Uh, Mary, uh, you know, in terms of technology, um, let's talk a little bit around virtual uh, and how that that could be helpful here. Uh, You know, are there other technology solutions that could potentially help the art, collectible, wine and spirits markets in this sort of new normal environment?
3: Yes, and and so um, the auction houses have really improved the quality of the visual product in terms of scale and and moving and there are also technological solutions where one can actually see how art would look on their wall. And so the auction houses have um, quickly responded um, and been very um, ingenious and inventive with uh, sustaining the art market in very uncertain times. And I um, fully agree with Juan's comments on you know the mechanisms changing and, and reinventing Um, And also Jamie's comments on the wine and and spirits industry, um, you know, very much driven by supply and demand and and perhaps uh, with restaurants closed down, um, this is creating part of the the opportunity. Um, With buying art online and even pre-COVID, there are so many... Um, art um, platforms to buy online, um, you know, as part of art generally becoming more accessible to people, it's really important to know what you're buying. Um, and so therefore it becomes even more important to have an experienced art advisor or attorney part of your team when you're, you're buying something that you can't visually see. Uh, the auction houses have been organizing personal appointments um, so you're not buying seeing, um, without seeing the the art, um, and I think these are some of the really interesting trends that are happening and keeping the art market going.
0: Thanks, Mary. Ron, uh, you mentioned a couple other innovations beyond the virtual auctions. Are there are there other things that you're seeing that that's showing some innovation during this time?
1: I think that, um, you know, in many ways, the auction houses have always been very good at sort of um, uh, reimagining uh, traditional fields of collecting and giving them new punch and new direction. And so, uh, for example, uh, you know, if we talk about areas of growth in the market, uh, obviously luxury goods are becoming much more popular, watches, wine, even ladies' handbags, um, certainly jewelry. Uh, whereas the more traditional fields like uh, furniture, decorations, and so forth, those have gone down. So I think there's going to be an increased effort to try to reimagine those areas and to give them maybe new marketing and promotion. For example, uh, I think Christie's had sales recently called, you know, the educated eye or, um, you know, the, the, the masterpiece sale or magnificent objects. And these are basically just repackaging uh, repackaging of old traditional fields of collecting like furniture and decorations, but they introduce them in a new way and they bring maybe a, a freshness to them that they didn't have before. So I think a lot of what's going on is going to be just uh, how do you bring people more into the market by making things more appealing even if you're not changing the nature of uh, the goods that you're selling. I would say one area that had explosive growth certainly is watches. Um, it's, it's unbelievable what's happened there. That was always a very strong field. And then, of course, we had the sale a few years ago of that Paul Newman Rolex watch. They made $17 million, which was a staggering record, and all of a sudden Rolex became the watch to have. So a lot of the developments in the market are driven by sort of the phenomena of, of successful sales that kind of focus people on a particular area of the market that they want to now pursue.
0: Thanks, Ron. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and step back and, and, and talk about the size uh, of some of these markets. Ron, how would you, how would you put a, a number and a figure to the size of the global art right. market?
1: You know it's staggering i think uh, deloitte or one of the big uh, accounting firms does an annual record of uh, of the art market and all its diversity and breadth and width and everything it's obviously untold billions of dollars of of turnover per year uh throughout the world but you know all of those numbers are pre-covid uh it's a very different market now so to harken back to what it was um, is kind of overlooking the fact that it has changed so much. Um, I think a lot of new buyers will come into the market looking for opportunities, looking for overlooked areas of collecting um, as as a way of kind of launching into collecting. But as far as the size is concerned, there's no question, it's now a, a global market. Players from every corner of the earth are participating. The world has shrunk to the size of a screen on your laptop. Um, there are no secrets anymore. You, everything is open for business. You can uh, attend any auction in the world online. So in that sense, um, the, the, the market is really open to everybody now in a way it never was. In the, like 30 years ago, it was really mostly Europeans and Americans and, and Asians who were participating. Now, it, it's just it's staggering the growth of the market just in the last few years.
0: And where do you... In, when you say global market, is that North America going out, or is the rest of the world looking at North America, or are some of those trends being more cross-border uh, between uh, different countries? Is, depending on that, where do you see those trends going?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, traditionally New York was a hub of the art market, London, Paris, and so forth. Uh, I think these continue to be very important. Obviously, Hong Kong is, is, uh, is crucial now as well. But I think that people tend to track art in terms of its its branded nature, how popular, how saleable it is, how valuable it is, and that cuts across lines. Uh, a few years ago, the Chinese were buying mainly Chinese works of art. They were kind of repatriating works that had sold to the West. Uh, all of a sudden, we had Chinese buyers bidding on American paintings, on works by George O'Keefe, for example, and even uh, Rockwell which was unheard of but I think the point is that these have now become kind of global commodities and people tend to look more in terms of how important the art is uh, how it's going to hold its value how branded it is and in that sense uh, the borders don't really matter all that much anymore.
0: Jamie what about uh, wine and spirits Uh, are are there areas of growth and decline that you've seen uh, and then you know, step back a little bit. The the size of that the, that market today.
2: So, um, so the, the the auction market, the secondary auction market, is around a five hundred million dollar a year um, uh, sales. And we believe, from from the research we've done, that the global fine wine market is about five billion a year. Uh, and so, really, the the auction market is a relatively small part of that. Um, and confined to to London, New York, and Hong Kong, in t- in terms of size. Uh, I mean, I think what we've seen is, is certainly the, um, the, the dominance of Asian buying in our marketplace. You know, we sell you know, well over 60% and have done consistently for, for a number of years to Asian bars from our global sales. Um, and so the Asian bar has been supremely important to us, uh, and our most important sales do, do happen in Hong Kong. Uh, and the reason you know, for that is, is we do source a lot of wine in Europe and the U.S. and ship it to Hong Kong for sale. So uh, we've also seen you know, growing markets in Latin America, in North America, um, and in Europe, particularly with younger bars. And, uh, and we've also seen that in the Spirits. We're relatively new to the Spirits business. Um, yeah, we really entered it last year uh, with a $10 million single owner collection and have been growing that category very, very fast, um, which is a very exciting category. Just sort of to give you an idea, uh, I, uh, as part of also the, the technology and the digital transformation, that enables us to reach a, a new uh, a new group of buyers um, who are yeah, digitally savvy, and uh, and yeah in in our auctions yeah our, our auctions have been averaging somewhere between 20 and 50% of bars who are new to Sothebys. So 50% was in a spirit sale in London. Um, we have 50% bars new to Sothebys. So, yeah, if uh, in our Burgundy sale in New York, 50% were under 50. And in our spirit cell in London, in that same spirit cell, 42% were under 40. So we do have a sort of you know, a, a diverse um, group of, of, of buyers. The younger bars obviously don't have wines in their cellars that they can go and, and get. They need to buy the wines. Mm-hmm. If they want to taste the you know, these the, the rare things, they have to go and buy them and acquire them. And yeah, rarity is certainly driving the marketplace. But we've seen yeah you know, a, a younger demographic shift. Um, yeah, you know, targeted, we've seen. Yeah, the digital tools that you can reach these, these people. Um, and also with the digital tools, yeah, you can target them. For so yeah, You know where they've gone on your website. You know what they've been doing. So um, And so you can use all of that information, whereas with a printed catalog, uh, you don't know what anyone's done with that. So I think the, the, the technology is sort of going to drive the change. I think the, the growth in the market is going to be yeah, a lot of targeting to younger buyers um, all over the world. We obviously do have one thing, which is regulation, which plays a, a, probably a bigger role in our in the wine and spirits market uh, than the art market because it's so regulated, and, and you know the, whether it's tariffs we have in the, in the US right now at twenty five percent. Yeah, the, the regulation will certainly um, play, play a big impact in, in going forward.
0: So, uh, on that backdrop, Jamie, I mean, should. Family and family offices consider art wine or collector collectibles as a distinct asset class.
2: So I I, th- I think so. I mean I think yeah I I think in order to invest in the wine and spirits market I think you do need to have an interest in it. Um, or, or it's probably yeah is is probably too um, difficult or challenging to understand. In terms of the way the market works and, and, and all, all the factors that are involved, um, but I think yeah, there is yeah, we've seen yeah. We've seen various statistics from various different um, yeah, uh, vested interests that can say that yeah the wine market is better than the stock market, the car market better than the stock market, the watches market. And sure, we can all create those statistics, but I think yeah there is a, a yeah if you look at the price of Burgundy, for sure Burgundy outperformed ma- many different markets. So I, I think from for my side there there is, but each each market is separate, it's individual, and there are different factors that drive it. Um, and yeah that you. Can't can't necessarily apply all the rules for wine to art or art to wine, um, et cetera.
0: Mary, given your experience with uh, family offices and working with them, uh, how have they looked at, you know, these different areas and categories as distinct uh, at the classes? What are your thoughts there? Um, important to
3: view collectibles, even they can be very nuanced, whether they're watches or or watches as uh, distinct asset classes, especially if they're quite valuable. Um, And like art, um, it's good to dialogue amongst the family with what you have and to to inventory it. Um, You know, if, you know, a life event occurs and there's proper planning in advance, you could um, be forced into a situation of disposing of something that's quite valuable and and losing a lot of money. Um, So I I think it is important um, to put the valuables um, in the same bucket uh, as art um, and make sure it's inventoried and and appraised. Um, There are different appraisals also that are needed for different purposes, whether it's for tax purposes uh, or for insurance purposes. Um, and also, just um, proper maintenance and, and storage, um, and you know, maintaining the value um, of these collectibles, especially for you know wine collection, and make sure that it's being properly stored. Um, that you know, there's so much going on weather-wise in the country right now. Um, you know, it's important to make sure that. You know, the temperatures are are not um, off, Um, and the same with art, just just to to make sure you have the right conditions, and that's uh, something that the family office needs to be proactive with um, in working with the family.
0: Thanks, Mary. Ron, you know, to get started, what, uh, how should a family office, uh, you know, get started in in building an art collection? Are there some best practices that you've seen and worked with families uh, over the years?
1: Yes. Well, I think family offices, uh, as we've seen it, have played an increasingly important role of influence with their clients in this area of, of art, art collecting. In many cases, it's reflected more in terms of what the family already has and how to have it properly valued and vetted and authenticated and, and so on, often as part of, let's say, a estate situation. But there's no question that family offices are increasingly important in this area of providing help and guidance to their clients. They don't necessarily uh, take on the role of actively giving advice in this area, but they're seeking impartial advice from others. I would say that they are very aware of the fact that art is really an investment class. When I was in Sudden years ago, nobody ever wanted to talk about art as an investment. It was almost like a vulgar term because you were supposed to buy art because you loved it. But there's no question that when we see the values just go bonkers with paintings and sculpture and jewelry and wine and watches and other areas of the market, you cannot ignore this as an area of interest to your clients. So I think that Family offices have probably become increasingly active in holding events where they expose their, their, their clients, their, their families to areas of interest. They might have a seminar about wine collecting or about jewelry or about some other area without leading them in any particular area. But I think it's incredibly important that family offices continue to play a role of being sensitive to their clients in this area of enormous and growing interest to them.
0: Jamie what about uh, wine and spirits or families and family offices looking to get started there what advice would you give them?
2: so um, yeah we do see a number of, of family offices um yeah involved in wines and spirits um yeah, the what what Mary was saying about yeah the inventorying and, and storage of wine is is critical so yeah, we see a lot of people um yeah come awry with with not setting themselves up correctly to to manage the inventory and 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 the storage and the embampis it, yeah it, it's it's very easy to buy wine every day, all spirits, it's, all, it's always available, there's a new vintage, there's a new producer every year, so like contemporary art, we're always uh, we're getting a fresh supply. And so I, I think it's important to to essentially set up a structure to, to manage the inventory part of it. Um, we've actually just uh, been developing a, a virtual cellar program so where people can manage you know, multiple sellers, um, both in, in storage with Sotheby's and and also with yeah in their own sellers. But the the management of the inventory is key. Obviously storage, um, and so so when you buy wine, so let's say you're buying futures, you need to track that who you bought it from, and that you actually get the wine delivered at the end of the day. And then when the wine mm-hmm. gets delivered to you, it is the wine that you have bought. And then in terms of um and so there's a whole inventory management piece to, to wine, which is. Yeah, we get spreadsheets of several thousand line items um, yeah, as part of our daily business. And, and obviously managing that, yeah, super important. Uh, in terms of, of what to buy, and, and uh, yeah, then yeah, we've seen uh, people come unstuck really with, with getting poor advice. Uh, so someone wanting to sell them things whereby, yeah, they were, they were wanting the sale and they were purportedly giving good investment advice um when that wasn't really the case and so yeah the market's not quite as uh, as broad as one as some people would think um and so it yeah, one has to to um, get advice as to what is it what what is a sound investment strategy in the wine market and also what the time what the uh, time period and horizons are um, and, and, all, and all the different costs involved so obviously yeah there's the auction houses have a buyer's premium um yeah there's shipping costs, there's uh, taxes, there's storage costs, there's insurance costs, and and uh and then many resale costs. So it just has to be be well thought through and um and uh and analyzed before people start. And very often people start and it it turns from a hobby into a, a greater hobby and, and just you need to manage that process.
0: Thanks, Jamie. You no, know, Mary, and you know, given that some, you know, some or much of this uh, the acquisition in in these areas, or whether it's art wine or collectibles, is driven by a lot of personal uh, aesthetic reasons that are, are individual to families. So, how how can and how should family offices support these types of efforts? I mean, you've you've been there on the front lines. What what's, what what's a good idea, and what are some you know, potential pitfalls there?
3: So, I I think it's very important, um, you know, to stay coordinated with the principals. Um, you know, when they make a decision to, you know, these major decisions, whether it's buying or selling something, um, they obviously can have uh, tax ramifications um, depending on how, um, you know, the, the structuring of, of the asset. Um, for instance, it's common to set up an LLC um, or, a good, or a best practice um, for uh, protection. And so, you know, it's important, I think, to to understand what's happening um, upfront rather than as an afterthought. Um, It's important, depending on how savvy the principal is and what's being purchased, um, you know, to include an expert advisor in in the area. Um, You know, if the principal is more experienced, probably still it's a best practice to have an expert involved so that they're getting the right, um, you know, access um, to, to the best. Um, and also, um, you know, to, just to, to counsel on, on pricing and just other factors so that, um, you know, the principal's getting the best valuation. Um, so the, mm-hmm. the, so I think it's the most important thing is really good coordination with the family office, uh, planning ahead in terms of any Impact on on trust structure or state planning, um, so that it's
0: considered part of the investment portfolio. Thanks, Mary. Ron, let's let's talk about risk management. I mean, we talk about risk management from family offices uh, in, a, in a lot of different aspects. But what about when they're looking at purchasing art or wine? I mean, there's a lot of issues yeah. to consider, whether it's prominence, you know, trans transporting. Uh, uh, art from one place or another just are showing it. What, what, what are some good considerations that you've worked with families uh, on in these areas?
1: There's no question that the art market entails a great deal of uh, concern for risk management. And certainly in buying art, you want to make sure that you're getting something of value, you're getting something that is what you, as identified, um, and that's something that, that is going to, let's say, hold its value over a period of time. Um, I would say the the biggest concern is just due diligence in every conceivable aspect of the art market. Um, all too often people are kind of swept up by the, by the hype and the excitement of the market and certainly when you go to an art fair it's like a, it's like a carnival, it's exciting. And it's easy to get kind of drawn into buying things just because you're kind of in the moment and the excitement is surging and you don't want to miss out on an opportunity. And the salesmanship in the market tends to be pretty strong and alluring. So I think it's very important to kind of slow things down and to take a long view to do the necessary due diligence on, on any acquisition, certainly. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go along, but there's no question that paperwork and provenance are in, excruciatingly important in the art market we've had many calls recently with uh, family office clients who were interested in selling a work of art that was in the family for quite a long time and there was no paperwork let's say it was a painting by an impressionist artist whose market is very well established and yet there's no paperwork there isn't a bill of sale there isn't a record of where it was acquired there was no no documentation on this work's previous ownership. And that's a problem, that's a red flag. It's like having a house with no title. And so I think one of the biggest issues for family offices in advising their clients is to make sure that they bring the same kind of discipline to buying something in the art market that they would in, let's say, acquiring stocks and bonds in the financial markets. You have to really do the due diligence. Sometimes it's kind of boring and tedious, and not as exciting as kind of being swept along by a quick sale, let's say at an art fair, but the more you do the homework, the more you basically dot the I's and cross the T's on any transactions in the art market, the happier you're going to be. You want to make sure that you you buy something of value that is as described and that is not always uh, to be assumed in the art market.
0: Ron, on that background, with, uh, with, with families that uh, are going to these things and there are potential for, for quick decisions, would you recommend that they bring somebody with them, and, and what should that person look like?
1: Yeah, I think it's somebody who's impartial, somebody who is taking a different point of view. Somebody's going to kick the tires, shall we say, and ask the difficult questions and run the numbers. That's always a good idea. Um, That doesn't mean your enjoyment of that experience is going to be in any way diminished. But I just think that, you know, I mean, let's face it. Family office office clients look to their financial advisors to protect them in the financial markets, which is highly regulated. Um, The art market is not regulated really at all. It's almost like it runs on a gentleman's agreement. Uh, There may be some markets like the wine market that are more regulated, but overall, uh, we don't have the same standards and practices that uh, there are in the financial market. So therefore, you need to ask the questions and to get somebody else's opinion about something to make sure that you're getting the full picture. Without that, you may just sort of jump into the void and regret it.
0: So Jamie, some specifics on the wine and spirits market. Uh, what risk management best practices would you offer up there?
2: So um, we're actually pretty similar to the art market in this respect, and um, that um, yeah, authenticity is an issue in our in our business, and uh, and it has been for, for some time. And so yeah, the provenance condition is another one. So authenticity is obviously if you are buying at the, the very rare end of the marketplace, you need to make sure you're buying from a trusted source, um, and uh, and make sure that, you know, that 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 trusted source is sort of somewhat verified. Yeah, people say, uh, yeah, a lot of people say yeah, it comes from a Scottish seller or, or an old European seller, and, and yeah, that, that that is very frequently the case now. So, uh, so checking, verifying the provenance and understanding the provenance of, of wines is super important in the same way that Ron was mentioning. Condition for us is, is also another another uh, area of concern. So it needs to be, as Mary was saying, it needs to be stored correctly. And so if it's stored correctly, uh, if it's got the right provenance and, uh, and it is stored correctly, it should be in excellent condition. Um, and so you want to make sure that everything you're buying, yeah, the fill levels, yeah, are important in wine. The labels used to be less important, but with Asian buying uh, driving the marketplace, yeah, even little nicks and scratches and scuffs on the label can uh, can affect their desire a bit. Um, and so, yeah, one obviously needs to make sure that, that all that is uh, is is taken care of uh, in, in terms of condition. And then storage is critical to it. Yeah, you want it to be keeping your wines at, at 55 degrees, uh, yeah, with a reasonable humidity at 60 to 80 uh, percent, vibration free, in the dark um and that is uh, is very very important you also want to be buying in um in yeah ideally in in full cases now you know a full case used to be 12 bottles uh much more frequent now is six bottle cases um but used hmm. to yeah ideally you want to be buying in four cases of uh, of six bottles or, or 12 bottles um or yeah as per the different larger larger formats as they come um but you want to to really Put together a, a collection rather than of, of various bottles you want to be aware of things like people making up composite cases so where there's a, let's say there's 12 bottles of Petrus 1990 uh but it's actually been being collated from from yeah 12 different bottles rather than a full case of it so someone might be selling as a case of 12 bottles, but in fact they come from different sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you just need to be wary to all of this, and, and to, uh, to understanding, you know, where wine's moved around, how 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 far it's moved. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the full traceable problems of the wine, uh, very similar to what. Great. Uh, Mary, Are, I would inter- uh, sorry, I, I, I would just say one thing on spirits, which is slightly different sure. to wine. So spirits is uh is super important to have the original packaging. So, um, and so with, with spirits, you want not just the bottle to be in pristine condition, but you want the packaging to be it. So the bottle on its own, without the packaging, you know, it leads to lots of uh, aspersions as to the authenticity of the, uh, of the actual product. So the packaging is very, very important in spirits, and you know, we'd be reducing estimates by up to 50-plus percent if, if the packaging is not there. So packaging is more like the watches market, um, where that's also super important.
0: Right. Uh, Mary, in terms of strategic and tax planning that families should consider, uh, what about when they've decided to uh, start collections or they've got an extensive collection in place already? What, what, should, what are some things that they should be thinking about?
3: Um, they should be thinking about whether other family members share their same tastes for the art. Um, it's it's a best practice, aside from a means of bringing families together um, to educate the um, next generation um, as to the art that they hold. Um, often collectors may just accumulate the art, and um, I don't want to say in vacuum, but, but perhaps it's something that they're passionate about, but not everyone likes the same type of art. Um, And so it's important, I think, um, education is is a good um, start and dialogue about taste. And, you know, I've seen examples where a younger generation was more interested in um, social impact investing instead of the art. And there are strategies to plan ahead um, so that you can optimize the valuation of the art now and redeploy, redeploy the art proceeds into something that's more meaningful uh, to another family member. And, I mean, the, the, what you wanna avoid is, is a fire sale. You know, a life event happens um, and the family needs cash or they just don't like the art and, and there's um, emotions running high. So I think it's, it's really important um, to be dialoguing about, about taste and um, to be strategic.
0: Thanks, Mary. Uh, in, in that vein, Ron, what about art and lending and, and, and lending on collectibles? W- where have you seen that work and where are some places where it, it sort of looked uh, for some improvement?
1: I think it's uh, certainly something that's on the upswing. Um, as you know, a lot more banks have gotten involved in an area where traditionally they never would have uh, been involved, art lending. At the beginning, I think uh, years ago, it was Sotheby's and maybe Christie's had uh, art lending uh, facilities because banks didn't want to uh, get involved in this. Again, as the value of art has gone up and become much more mainstream and branded and valuable, uh, obviously um, it becomes easier to put a value on art, to verify its uh, authenticity, and to lend against it. Um, I think it's a very valuable service. I think it's also something where, you know, it it provides a lot of flexibility to families. There may be liquidity issues that uh, they need to address with art that they have that's uh, appreciated in value, and all of a sudden they can use that as a form of a loan. So I think it's a very important service, but again, you want to shop around and make sure you're dealing with a very reputable firm. Uh, We've heard stories from time to time uh, of basically art lending institutions, not banks, but others that are really kind of more predatory in the way that they conduct business. So again, you wanna make sure that you're dealing with a very reputable source, but I think it's become um, a really important area of the art market that uh, offers a genuine and very timely service.
0: Well, what about valuation? I mean, it's a very wide uh, area. Uh, Ron, yeah. in, in terms of all these different areas, uh, with, whether it's art or wine or, or collectibles. How how have you seen families do this well, and what are some best practices uh, that, that folks should consider?
1: Well, I think reality is very important when talking about the value of art. I mean, you have people who very often have insurance valuations that have carried it along for a number of years that are kind of inflated. Um, And they maybe do not reflect necessarily the genuine value of something at any given moment in the art market. So I think uh, managing expectations is probably the most important uh, aspect of any valuation. Again, I'll go back to this issue of authenticity because I think it's just playing an enormously increasing role in the art market because you cannot take for granted the authenticity even of works uh, that were bought from reputable dealers which maybe still need to be vetted before they get sold. We had a, uh, a client come to us recently about a Calder that he has, and that is a very mainstream market, a sculpture by Alexander Calder. He bought it from a reputable source. He paid quite a bit of money for it. It's gone up enormously in value. That is a very hot segment of the art market, very mainstream. Calder was very prolific and he sold his works to the top dealers in the world. However, the Calder Foundation now is in charge of authenticating and keeping a register of all the known works by Calder. So to even get that properly registered, they have to see it. Even if it's signed by him, even if the paperwork is pure gold, it still has to be seen by them and included in the catalog included in the register. So this is an important aspect. It gets back to this whole issue of paperwork and making sure that something is vetted and is confirmed as to its authenticity. That often will determine value. As far as best practices for, I think, family offices and their clients, you want to engage a reputable firm to do evaluation and you want to make sure that it's updated from time to time And also I can't stress enough the importance of insurance. Very often uh, families just don't bother to carry the proper insurance for works that have gone up in value and maybe they carry these things under their household policy and they could be doing themselves a real disservice by not observing, let's say, the necessary um, insuring of important, uh, important works of art that are accelerating in value.
0: Uh, thanks Ron uh, Jamie in terms of the 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 wine and spirits market, what are some good things that you've seen on the valuation side and what advice would you give there?
2: Um, so I mean I think uh, obviously there are some tools out there for valuing, um for valuing wine collections, uh, less so with spirits in fact but uh, wine search is uh, yeah, a very good tool for for finding out what the values are and what the availability is in the current market is an aggregator um, winesearcher dot com uh, and then there are various different valuation tools uh, that are out there and data um, from the, the secondary market. Um, yeah, a wine market journal um, is probably the leading provider of that information. And so th- there is uh, information ar- around it. Um, yeah, you can um, yeah benchmark your collection um, a- against it, and and one should always yeah, um, yeah yeah keep up to date with the values and you know, both when you're acquiring and also when you're holding the wines. Um, one of the issues is the drink by dates which are always notoriously wrong in the wine business um, they're generally done when when the wines are first tasted and then never updated so they're not really current drink by dates uh, which are accurate um, but but yeah I, I think the the requirement uh, of any wine collection is to maintain an accurate inventory um, particularly in third-party storages and then to verify that inventory um, yeah one of the things which you want to be wary of is is if you're storing with someone who's selling wine um that, that your wine is uh is independently marked indicated and uh, and safely stored and cannot be accessed by that uh that business to to to, to sell it because yeah there are m- many uh historical cases whereby people have borrowed inventory from storage and um yeah with the full intention of of, uh, of replacing it um, but that means it wasn't the the, the problems that you originally got. And if they if they are they don't replace it, then that's obviously a problem. Um, but but generally there are sort of, yeah there there are tools out there to do it. Um, but it needs to be focused focused on and um, and is probably one of the most critical things about it, building a wine's first collection.
0: Thanks, Jamie uh, Ron. In terms of records, I mean you you discussed this a little bit earlier. But what what should family offices executives be, uh, be maintaining for the art that the family has, and, and why is this important, and, and what are some, you know, potential tools to help them do that?
1: Well, as you can imagine, with the value of art going up so much, buyers need to be assured that what they're buying is authentic. Um, and one way of assuring that is is paperwork, records. Um, families should be asked about bills of sale. Where was something bought? Um, Was it exhibited? Was it published? Um, What sort of information do they have about the provenance of something that they own? That is pure gold nowadays. It really is. And increasingly, uh, the auction houses will ask for this. And if they don't have it, it's a red flag. And it may be, as I've mentioned before, a painting in the family that may be completely authentic but has absolutely no paperwork with it. That That could go into limbo land to be unsaleable simply because there isn't any paperwork. So I think the earlier questions are asked about this and that a paper trail can be created for everything owned in a collection, the better. Um, For example, uh, you know, with jewelry, um, nowadays the auction houses really want GIA certificates of jewelry, uh, even if they already have a certificate, let's say it's three years old, they may say, we want to see a new one. Just because the values have gone up so much, they need that kind of constant stream of reaffirmation of value and authenticity. So I think this is something that family offices need to be especially concerned about because it really bears on not only the value of something, but also its salability. If you don't have the paperwork, you could have a problem with something that otherwise is perfectly authentic. Um, I think this gets to the, the issue of, the important role that family offices play in the art market that maybe 20 years ago they did They have become centers of influence like never before in terms of being an authority that their clients can turn to for help, for advice, for insight. Not that they are providing it directly themselves, but they are providing out, you know, sources of information, impartial advisors and so forth who can help their clients. And I think this is a, this is a great step forward in the art market. Uh, and it, it, it gives the family offices, I think, a lot more confidence in having their clients as active participants in the art market.
0: Mary, in, in terms of the next generation, I mean, I mean can art and collectibles, you know, be an effective tool here or is it sort of a cliche? Um, I think
3: as I, I started to discuss um, you know, previously, art and collectibles, yes, I think clearly there are trends for wine and watches that I've seen for the the next gen or the younger generation coming up, um, something they're really interested in. Um, But even more so, social impact investing, and I'm I'm mentioning that again, because I I think their their tastes are, are changing. And I think for the families to um have an education session to talk about what it is that interests them and and to get them knowledgeable so um to the points we've been hearing about you know they're they're not taken advantage of um you know on the fly through forgeries through lack of proper documentation um i think it's um you know there there are new ways to make things more fun and exciting to buy things um, especially online so I think that um, also family offices can uh, play a key role uh, in terms of helping to um, educate about potential scams of online buying expensive items. Uh, so I think um, education is a key word here in many respects, um, and a family office can, can play a very important role.
0: Ron, where, are you, where have you seen um, art and various other collections uh, work for next generation engagement?
1: Well, I think it's definitely the trend is toward uh, maybe hipper, more cool things to collect like watches, cars is a big growth area. There's no question that wine is is important. Um, You know, the old traditional English furniture, French furniture that uh, your parents maybe collected is probably not of interest to the younger generation, but there are trendier mid-century modern furniture. There's Nakashima furniture. There there are other things that, that are much more stripped down and not as uh, flashy, which maybe a younger generation would find of much greater interest. Uh, to answer your question about getting the younger generation involved, I think it's incredibly important, I really do. Uh, we have seen so many situations over the years where let's say a great collection comes to auction and the family members are just completely indifferent about the sale of the collection. They've never really been sort of brought into the whole adventure of collecting things. Maybe their parents did this as a separate kind of thing, but the children sort of have a giant disconnect and therefore they don't feel it's important to them and they just as soon see it sold. And I think that's really a shame. I think younger the younger generation should be made part of the the, the experience of collecting. They should know what's there. They should have an appreciation for its value and its and its connoisseurship and so forth. Um, in certain areas it's it's really important. For example, you could have a client who's collected rare coins, which is um, you know very specialized. And unless other members of the family know something about that collection, or have been instructed about it, if that person died, the family could be prey to you know ruthless, unprincipled individuals who might try to buy this from them for a song because they don't really know what it is or its value. So I think. Getting the, the the younger generation involved is incredibly important, and I think encouraging them to take an interest in art no matter what it is.
0: Thanks, Ron. Now, uh, I'm, I'm curious about everyone's opinions on this one. In terms of finding reliable information or, you know, networking with other families or family office executives uh, for, you know, the art, wine, or collectibles world, where would you, where would you you know, suggest people um, take a look at? You know, maybe, Ron, we could start with you.
1: Well, I think you can get lots of information about uh, the art market just from available uh, trade sources. I mean, things like, uh, you know, look, just going on an auction house website, you'll learn a lot. Just what's out there? What are the various areas of collecting? What are the values of things? They'll, you know, there'll be estimates on, on items. If you were collecting mine, you could see what a particular... Um, you know, line value is and what what it's selling for. Uh, Reading about uh, developments in the art market at places like uh, online publications like Artnet or Art News or the art newspaper. You can really learn a lot just by poking around, asking questions, and reading about developments in the market. I think that's a great way to start and you'll educate yourself in that way. And um, there are a lot of articles as well just about the practices of the market now. Um, you know, where is their unscrupulous behavior? Where is their fraud? Where are their wonderful new opportunities for collecting? I think the more you get around and, and read and expose yourself to some of the sources of information about the market, which are all out there, virtually everything is online, uh, the more comfortable you become in this particular market.
3: I would um, um, echo what Ron said. and. You know, it's unfortunate with COVID that the art fairs are not open, but the art fairs yeah. are a wonderful way to go to different booths. Um, for instance, um, you know, there's Art Basel, and then there's the the art fair at the Armory in New York, and what a what a great way to talk to people in the, the collectibles market and the art market, um, and so we, we look forward to those reopening. But in the meantime, also private dealers, uh, I'm sure you can still mm-hmm. make appointments you know, with them um, and you know, find some art, private art dealers that you, you enjoy their art and, um, and learn more from them. So those are just some other suggestions.
0: Thanks, Mary. Uh, Jamie, your thoughts on uh, you know, finding some interesting and reliable information in the wine and spirits market?
2: So we're, we're pretty similar to Ron, and um, in, in that, yeah, you want to uh, look around, you want to develop relationships with people who you can trust. So whether that's at auction houses, um, you certainly want to to, to yeah you know, ask questions um, and become familiar with what's going on in the auction world. Find someone you can trust in that that environment who's advice you 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 trust and think is smart. Uh, the same with wine merchants, um, you know finding a wine merchant who, who again can give you, you know, so, some information um it's generally speaking with when buying wine you can't satisfy all you want to buy in in the secondary market or in the primary market you need a combination of both and i think you're yeah, doing the research um you can always check prices on winesearch.com you can yeah you need to start um understanding the marketplace so both for wines and spirits so what makes you yeah, know you know rare um yeah what were the Production sizes of different um, of different things. Wise, Burgundy, you know, uh, being, being more popular than Bordeaux? Uh, and so you need to start educating yourself. And yeah, all, all that information is available in various different formats. I think one of the best ones is, is also the news, newsletters that you can sign up for um, from various different publications, yeah, you know, Drinks Business or or um, Wine Spectator um there are there are many many different um different informations that provide you daily news on what's going on in the wine market and just making yourself aware of those um is uh is, is important but it's still building a network of of uh, trusted advisors where you can bounce things off each other um and understand mm-hmm. what they are and, and you yeah, there, there's a lot of um yeah there, and yeah there's a lot of advisors in our business now virtually anyone who's um who's poured a glass of wine is giving advice um, and, and so you, you need to be a little bit careful about who you're getting advice from and, and what's in their interest. Um, so self-interest is obviously prevalent in our business um, and you just need to be wary of that.
0: Great. Uh, all right. Last question. A quick quick one around, uh, you know, in terms of the, the one piece of advice uh, that you'd like to leave family office executives for your respective areas. Mary, let's start with you. Um, well. This-
3: is to make sure you keep good uh, records, and, and maybe this is the chief financial officer in me, but make sure you have a good inventory management system with all the details that you'll need for insurance or tax purposes, um, and including the, the provenance documentation uh, that we've heard about a lot. So I think that's um, really key. Keep keep good records.
0: Keep good records. Keep good records. Uh, thanks, Mary. Uh, Jamie, your thoughts.
2: Um, so I, I would 100% agree with Merish. I'm glad she checked that one off. Um, I would say that it's um, the, the find the advisors that you can trust um, because, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, people know the market. They understand what it is. And if you can trust them, then you're going to get great advice. Uh, so so find, find the best
0: skills that you can trust. Excellent. And then, Ron, uh, your parting thoughts.
1: I would agree with the above remarks. I would also say that I think it's important for family office uh, executives to just be, Uh, very aware of uh, the importance of the art market to their clients, even if they don't know that much about what their interests are in collecting, I think to be sensitive in this area and to ask questions about what they have and the practical questions about are things insured, have they been valued, have they been authenticated, do you have records, all of the practical issues uh, that would flow from just showing an interest in this particular area that I think is of growing interest to their clients.
2: I would say well, one, other, one other thing is, uh, is to understand the, um, the costs involved in the, in, in the market. So when you're buying, what are the all-in costs that you have to pay and when you're selling? And just so, so you understand you know, everything about it, we've seen people who have, you know, who have bought um, yeah, significant collections and they just don't really understand what the, what the market is and what their cost price was and what their expectations could be in terms of a return.
0: That's a good piece of advice. Well, thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Ron, and Mary. I uh, really appreciate everyone's thoughtful insights today. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests or you have any questions, do drop us an email at to familyoffice@bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for our newsletter, get this podcast, and much, much more in your inbox, and learn about how we help family offices. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you liked us, give us a review. Uh, We definitely appreciate that. And thank you again to our panel and thank you all for joining us today. That's it. And check back for a new podcast in two weeks.
4: The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.